0: This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd, and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. In this episode, I've been speaking with the leader of a business unlike any other. Ashley Good runs an organization that helps people and groups to discuss and learn from their failures. And she's been telling me how and why she does it.
1: Failure is something we're told to avoid at all costs. You know, it's not something that we're taught how to deal with really well. So we're often lacking the skills to have productive conversations or, you know, maximise what we can learn or apply those learnings within our organisations.
0: Ashley is from Toronto in Canada, and she is the founder of the world's first failure consultancy. They're called Fail Forward and they work to help people and organisations and I quote turn failures into insights, innovation and inspiration. If you're listening to this and you're involved in community work of any kind, then I'm sure, like me, you've experienced failure or at least things not working out as you hoped. And so this interview is for you. In my conversation with Ashley, you'll hear why it can be so hard to talk about failure, how we can start to overcome some of these obstacles, what becomes possible in our life and work when we learn to reflect honestly with one another about our failures. And Ashley will also share some tools and tips to help you get better at discussing and learning from failure. But before we get into today's interview... I just want to share with you something that happened when I first sat down to interview Ashley. So I was telling her a little about Arika Network and why I got in touch with her, and here's what happened. Okay, we're, we're this support network for people who work in community development, mainly in Africa and parts of India, but we're we're kind of a global a global network. And we recently had a, a an online forum for our members, um, and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know our members are all, all people who w- work in community development in all sorts of different ways, um, and you know our members suggested what topics we should cover, and we had eight sessions in the week, and one of them was learning from failure, mm. and it was it was really just a discussion. It was a group discussion with about tw- twenty or thirty of us, and um, it was really interesting. But but um, yeah yeah the idea for the session made me think I'd, I'd seen you online at some point your your organization and um you you know um i'd been meaning to contact you for a while so this session was the the prompt to to do that um, that's
1: great that's yeah. great what came out of the discussion do you remember any like what were maybe not come come out of it it's not the right word but the the feeling amongst the group where did they land and so she asked
0: me this question and The first thing that came to my mind was a very short story that one of our members told. And we were recording the session at the time. And so I'm going to share with you now that story because it seems like a really interesting place to start this episode. It's a story that really starts to question how we define what is success and what is failure. So telling this story is Jubin. She is a disability specialist in Dehradun in Northern India and here is what she said.
2: We have uh, in Dehradun where we are at, we have Special Olympics. So Special Olympics is for children with uh, disabilities and uh, there are these relay races that are run and you know they have these different sports events. So for one of those we had worked with our children, prepared them for this relay race. So uh, training children with intellectual disabilities for a race or a relay race means we need to teach them every step of the way that, you know, you stop running at this point and then you pass on the stick you have to the next person. Don't hit the person, give it to them in their hand so that the next person can keep running and you don't run along with them. You stop. So after all of this training, you take them for this um, race and we're all standing there. And there's this one school that was supposed to be winning because they had some really good runners And uh, what happened was as soon as the race started, they did, you know, on your mark, get set, go. Uh, All the schools were running in the correct direction. There was this one school, the school that was supposed to win because they had the fastest runners. The guy, the first guy started running in the opposite direction. You know, now if we usually train with them for about six months to get them to do this right. And there's this guy running in the opposite direction. And what struck me was the coach of that school didn't stop him, you know. They just, the school came together, encouraged them to finish the race. So they came first, but they came first in the opposite direction. Yeah. And there was a huge celebration. And to me, I think that is success. The joy of having done something together. The joy of having having taken the risk to be part of something. And it didn't matter whether you came in first or last, but just the joy of having done it. And so there's oftentimes I stop and think and think, when was the last time I had that joy? You know, it wasn't about sending the proposal right in on time or the report right in on time or this amazing funding that came through. No, no, no. Just the joy of being where I am and the privilege of being involved with what I'm doing. So I think that if we want to use the word of success at all would be it.
0: So that was Jubin, a wonderful member of our network in northern India, with a thought provoking story of how we think about success and, of course, failure. But let's get into my conversation with Ashley now. And I began by asking her how the idea for her Fail Forward consultancy came about.
1: I was working for Engineers Without Borders, and I was based in northern Ghana, and I was working on this UN funded project. Um, spent six months supporting, you know, these incredible folks to um, to develop agricultural initiatives in northern Ghana, and as is the case with a lot of international development projects, I had a lot of conversations with the team about all of the flaws in the projects, the things that were really tough and were going wrong. I mean, one of the most. Uh, one of the ones that sticks in my head is just about the uh, the project was designed pre-2008 with a bunch of financial um, assumptions based in a pre-2008 world, but the project was delivered in 2010 in a post-recession um, world, and a lot of the financial assumptions didn't hold true. So there's just there was just kind of fundamental issues with the project that we we had a lot of conversations about, and uh, I distinctly remember this evaluator. A UN evaluator flies in from Rome, um, trying to see how the project's going and 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 if we're staying on track and all that good stuff. And and this guy, you know, brilliant guy, asks all the right questions, and honestly, just doesn't get real answers to his questions. And I I watch this, and I'm 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 in a supporting role, and and the evaluator kind of leaves the room, and I look at my my colleagues and go like. Like why didn't you tell him what we've been talking about? <laughs> like all these things, it would really help him to know that um, this project is supposed to have pilots and be adaptable, and it was designed like that, and that's great. But how how will you know the the head honchos designing these projects in Rome know how to um, how to adapt these projects in future if if we don't tell the truth and um, or the whole truth rather, and. It was, I mean, I, I'm simplifying their answers uh, to, to my question. My rather, I guess, innocent, um, if a little naive question. It, but they said, you know, we we like our jobs. We want to keep doing our jobs. And there's a lot of incentives to not be the, the troublemaker. Um, because if you're the one saying that you can't do it or that it's not working, um, that 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 there's just no incentives to be that person that says that. And they knew they were great at their jobs and they knew they were great at doing the workarounds. Um, so they were just going to keep doing that because that would have the best outcome for the beneficiaries as well. So I was just, but my idealistic mind is just super frustrated by this whole scenario. Um, and, and I came home to Toronto and I see those same dynamics playing out Everywhere, you know, not just in international development, but you know, in my family life, in like my interactions with my bank, with whatever. Um, it, it just seemed to be a really human characteristic that I'd never noticed before until that moment. So, um, I, 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 it was if I got tunnel vision. Like I almost feel like fail forward chose me i didn't choose fail forward it was just like i couldn't actually see any other way of looking at problems except this really unhealthy relationship with failure that we were fostering in our organizations um and and became a little bit obsessed with it uh to be perfectly honest and i started leading the annual engineers without borders failure report so helping them talk about their stories of failure but because we published that publicly um you know other organizations started to get interested so i did work for other organizations off the side of my desk and very quickly that turned into my full-time job so i i started the organization and
0: i imagine that would be quite a so you said that that phrase a failure report they produced the failure report i've never heard yeah. that 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 phrase before was it just a completely a, a new thing at the at that time
1: <laughs> so it was actually we um The first report came out while I was still overseas, um, and we'd always referred to it as the failure report, uh, kind of informally. But actually, the first uh, edition that came out, we kind of got cold feet at the last minute and put like uh, learning from our mistakes as the title <laughs> instead. Um, because again, we just, uh, you know, it's, it's international development. We felt like there wasn't that space to really say, this is the book of our failures um, and had to just put the euphemism in the title um, that said, no, we're, but, but and, and I mean, learning from our mistakes was the goal. So it wasn't necessarily a euphemism, but we were afraid of that word. And it took a couple of years before finally we just started calling it The failure report, and and honestly, that's where the idea really took off because I think people were ready to have this conversation, ready to just stop beating around the bush and say, "Yeah, like we are terrible at creating the space to have the conversations that we need to be having."
0: I I hope this isn't too personal a question, but when you you, when you Mm -hmm. said you saw you began to get tunnel vision and see see everything around you, interactions with your bank and within your family and within organizations. Um, this reluctance to talk about failure was that were you you, did you see that uh, within yourself as well did you did you feel (laughs) that that kind of fear or reluctance
1: oh goodness um you know I it's such a funny question because and I, I do have to laugh at myself at this because I when I started this you know I thought I started it because I had you know, some little nugget of wisdom to share with the world, right? Like we can have better conversations about failure and I can help you have those conversations. Isn't that great? Like that's genuinely where I started fail forward from. And the more that I do this work, the more that I realize that I started this because I have, you know, a a horrible relationship with my own failures, um, that I struggle with, um, maladaptive perfectionism and my 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 own failures that happen even though i've been doing this for almost a decade now you know when i fail i feel awful and i beat myself up and i feel the same defensiveness that everyone else does and and the only difference is now that i watch myself go through that and (laughs) again have to laugh at myself like this is my job i'm supposed to be amazing at this Mm. and have to kind of swallow my own medicine which um I guess it's given me a lot of appreciation of, of really how easy this stuff is to say and how just profoundly difficult it is to change those habits. Mm,
0: mm. I, I want to delve into that a bit more, changing mm. those habits and that, that the the kind of difficulty of it. But l- let's just go back to the 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 setting up of the organization. Um, tell us what kind of uh, people, what kind of organizations did you start to to work with and and how how would it work? What would happen when you go into these organizations?
1: Hmm. So my my network was very much in the not for profit space, mm-hmm. um, and that's where that's where this I'd say this movement around the failure report and fail forward really really took hold. Um, there was I mean this is back in 2010. There were you know a, a handful of folks in Silicon Valley talking about failing fast and breaking things, but other than that, failure was not a conversation. Um, so I very, very much felt kind of this, um, this wave, this mo- momentum, um, kind of beneath my feet, uh, that was really a shift that was happening across the globe and how we talk about failure, not just in Silicon Valley with the tech companies and not just in nonprofits. So, um, but across the board. So it definitely started in the not-for-profit space, but very quickly I started doing work with governments and very quickly after that private sector companies followed, um, at first, I mean, my favorite thing to do was work with the not for profits and their funders because I found that that power dynamic was really important mm. um, in opening up the space for not for profits to have those conversations um so that was that was a big part of my work at first um but obviously, over ten years, the work that I've done has expanded dramatically i mean i um goodness how I like you asked me what what I do <laughs> what do I actually do when I go into an organization It's a great question. Um, I have started to think about the change that I create and my organization creates on three levels. Um, so that that first level is very much a like a language and a mindset level. Um, we have all these instinctive um, behaviors and, and learned behaviors around how we interact with our failures. How do we start to shift that? How do we talk about failures more productively? Um, and, and start to shift how we think about the experience of failure. And that's kind of the foundational level. Um, I do that with a lot of talks and workshops. Um, the second level is very much about the skills needed to deal with our failures. Well, failure is... A, a something we're told to avoid at all costs. You know, it's not something that we're taught how to deal with really well. So we're often lacking the skills to have productive conversations or you know maximize what we can learn or apply those learnings within our organizations. So it's very much about that skill building piece, which happens one-on-one with coaching or again with skill building workshops. And then the very last level that I think about with organizations is the how do we make this the norm? How do we shift our organizations so that our individuals don't have to choose to be this, you know, wonderfully courageous human that's going to talk openly about their failures. But how do we make that just a part of how we do work around here? Um, and that looks at how do we how do we think about our performance? Um, so how do we reward for learning, not just success? You know, how do we think about how we um, our job descriptions—you know—make those really creative. This is a place where we learn from our failures, and you're expected to talk about your failures as a part of your onboarding <laughs> process. Mm-hmm. So, really building it into the water supply of the organization in whatever way um, is is appropriate for the organization is kind of that third level.
0: I'm I'm curious as to what what becomes possible within an organization when they start to embrace failure. What what kind of Transformation or evolution have you seen take place as a result of of this work?
1: Hmm. Um, there 's lots of ways I could answer that question the first, the first thing that I just want to clarify is I often don 't talk about embracing failures um, or, or definitely not celebrating failures mm-hmm. and I, that matters to me only because I spend a lot of time with people in the midst of some of the worst professional failures of their lives. Mm. And there's no way I'm going into that room, you know, throwing up my hands and going, let's celebrate. Mm -hmm. We're going to embrace this moment and we're going to learn. It's like I, I there's there's just it's inappropriate response in a lot of these cases. How I tend to think about it is a healthy relationship with failure. Because obviously we want success, especially in the not-for-profit space, where our failures have consequences on people's livelihoods. Mm-hmm. You know, this is really important. Um, and so, how I think about it is the healthy relationship with failure—not because we want to celebrate failure. Obviously, we want success, but because it's our almost our duty, our responsibility to make sure we learn from this and don't repeat those mistakes. That makes this work so important. So. Uh, Small caveat to your question Um, to actually answer your question, though, about, um, you know, what becomes possible if we have that healthy relationship with failure. I mean, I might talk about it on on the individual level and the team level Um, on the individual level. When we fail, all of us feel shame. Um, It's embarrassing. You know, there's all those negative emotions that go along with it those will tend to push us into a defensive response. So we will beat ourselves up or we will blame others or we will, you know, move on as quickly as possible, try to fix it before anyone notices all the behaviors we kind of uh, recognize around a failure, um, which of course undermines our learning. Um, the What's possible when we shift that, the shame is still there. We're still going to feel bad about the failure, but the shift is our ability to look at that failure not run from it not hide from it not blame others for it but actually the willingness to do the very hard work of of turning our vision and looking at what happened as objectively as possible and say okay like this didn't work didn't go as planned I didn't do the right thing for whatever reason what was that reason what can I learn from this how do I grow stronger and wiser out of this experience it's again really easy to say very hard to do but that's the shift you shift from that defensive running away undermining your learning to a space of okay I actually can grow stronger and wiser from this and i should say one of the kind of unexpected benefits that people get when they have these conversations individually is that the more they talk about them the more that shame is decreased mm. <laughs> it's mm. it's kind of like the best shame destroyer is is shining a light on on the experience um so I say at an individual level, that's that's really what this work is is hoping to achieve. Um, at a team level, I, I mean, um, I'm I'm currently doing research for an upcoming book about workplace courage, and one of the first findings that my co-author and I had was that we're um, we tend to think of courage like that courage to. Gosh, ask a question, voice a concern, ask for help when we're struggling, share a new idea, you know, talk about a failure when it happens, Um, that we think of that courage as an intrinsic quality. But on our teams, it's actually very extrinsic, as in the people around us and especially our bosses have a huge influence on whether we are going to speak up or talk about our failures or share a new idea, you know, all the things that really improve performance. Um, And our second finding was that when leaders are, uh, so leaders, you know, they they have a huge influence on on if we have courage to act or or don't, Um, but when leaders are scared that they might be failing, um, you know, when they're stressed, when they're stretched, when they feel that they're in over their heads and they haven't openly acknowledged that they might be failing, that is when... Otherwise, great leaders do and say things that destroy their team's courage. Hmm. Uh, So it's really a powerful thing to have leaders in particular getting comfortable being open about their own feelings of failure um, in order to allow that courage that's needed for performance and success um, uh, to thrive on their teams.
0: And um I don't want you to you know give away all of your trade secrets but um I, I'm really interested you said it, um that you worked with uh funders as well and particularly in the in the the context I'm speaking to you from which is community development international development of, often these things involve projects that have have uh, backing from funders donors investors um um and it it's 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 obviously particularly difficult to say to those people who are funding the work you're doing that, oh, we just here, here's all the ways in which we've failed. Um, what what do you have any advice for 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 that relationship that that um, be- between the the doers um, in a community and the the, the people funding it?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna. So I have had the amazing honour of working with um, some really progressive thinkers in the funding space. Um, And one of them, his name is Tim Broadhead. He led the J.W. McConnell Foundation here in Canada for for quite some time, and I'm going to quote him because uh, as I was starting up these these projects, um, he's a a wonderful mentor of mine and uh, said... (laughs) Something along the lines of, you know, Ashley, it's just—it's the dance of deception. We're all caught in this dance of deception, where the um, the the nonprofits pretend to have the answers, and the funders pretend to believe them. <laughs> and it's like we need to stop the dance of deception. Was basically mm. how he thought about my work, um, and that just always really stuck with me. It's so beautiful to have a funder just acknowledge the dynamics of what's going on there because nobody's doing it out of ill will right like we mm-hmm. want yeah we want to have an answer we think this is a good program and we want to get funding for because we think it will work do we know it will work of course not but we have to say that we know it will work so we get the funding because those funders really want to believe that it'll work because they want to fund things that are going to have an impact because that makes them feel good too and everyone has all these incentives just to talk about what's working so and he'd just been in this space long enough and um to just, you know, just want to call, call it, call it for what it is. Um, so I would say not every funder uh, is like Tim brought it, but there are, I think if you have a one-on-one conversation with the vast majority of people in the funding space, they're there in some description or another mm. where they want to have an off, honest conversation. And the dynamics are such that makes it really hard. And I'm, I'm not taking away from that, but if you can have that kind of conversation, um, you know, that's really what opens up the doors. Like, let's be real here. I think this project will work. I don't know. So like, let's create space from the beginning and set expectations around learning and around um buffer you know budget buffer to change the project should we need to Mm. we're actually going to fund learning throughout the project not just at the end when we write the report like there are lots of ways to kind of build that mindset into your relationship with your funder if you can start from the beginning with that as the conversation Mm. Uh, so that would be if you can do that with and I realize, you know, applying for government grants, it doesn't work like that. You fill out their paperwork, <laughs> and, you know, you send it off. So I'm sounding a little bit idealistic here. But for those funders that you can have that relationship with, you know, be willing to take that risk and say, look, like, let's stop this dance of deception. We both know that this is an incredibly hard problem to solve. Um, so let 's learn together and i you know I commit to sharing my learning with you if you commit to you know being prepared to to reward that learning and not mm. just success
0: so so it's a lot about <clears throat> excuse me um setting expectations at the beginning and perhaps um like the conversation we had uh, just before we s- started the interview about um defining what success might look like and is it is it like the successful completion of the projects or is it uh the 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 kind of completion of the projects and the the learning um surrounding it and um um learning of absolutely. when things go wrong
1: absolutely yeah. and i think there are there are limits to that right like there are some things that we know create an impact like the the one that often comes to mind is like if we distribute vaccines, you know, that's a pretty linear relationship mm-hmm. to promoting, you know, obliterating polio or whatever yeah. it is. Um, you know, but that's one of the only cases I can think of where it's really a linear relationship between mm-hmm. action and effect mm-hmm. and, and, and outcome. Um, so and, and just about everything else we do in uh, in this work is a lot more complex than that. And so just being willing to talk about it as for the complexity that it is. So it's not, you want to hold people accountable to results, of course. You know, we, we want that, that pressure to do our best work. Um, but that pressure has to come with the explicit appreciation that to do our best work requi- in the complexity that we're in requires us to learn as we go and be really open and honest about that learning.
2: Mm.
0: What's the hardest thing in, in your work?
1: I, the hardest thing for me is knowing that I could do, you know, I could go into an organization and do the best work of my life. (laughs) whatever, say all the right things, you know, like get the skills exactly right, lead the best workshop or, you know, do the best work I could possibly do with an exec team to sort start to shape those organizational structures. Um, And that all of our instincts and our learned behaviors lead us in the other direction, to st- mm-hmm. are still pulling us the other way to have that unhealthy relationship with failure. Um, so it it almost always feels like in my work, it's kind of, we're gonna take those steps forward and we really want to have this healthy relationship with failure, but those pressures to revert back to old ways are always there. Mm. Um, so it's not a like a one and done, relationship with my work it's it has to be a oh i've started calling it a practice it's a practice we're never great at failure we never have that healthy relationship with failure like i said i've been doing this for 10 years i do not have that perfect relationship with failure but that constant willingness to uh to work at it to know that's where i want to get to um uh, and and each test that we have be willing to uh, to try to put our what we know the relationship we want to have with failure to, to put that to the test. Um, Every time all those instincts want to pull us back into blame and defensiveness.
0: Mm. So what, what would you say to someone who um, they're listening to this and they, they love what you're saying and they're thinking, you know, they might, they might run some community project somewhere and they're thinking, right, we need to produce a failure report and we're going to, we're going to, at the end of this year, we'll produce a failure report, send it out to our, our supporters. Um, um but they maybe start to worry oh will they stop giving to us what 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 would you say should Mm. they should they fight their fight their instincts and just go for it would you would you say Mm. that to them or would you say that with with some caveats or or what
1: i'd say i say yes with caveats Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) um i should i should say um in my experience and i've helped a number of organizations write failure reports now no one to my knowledge has ever lost a single dollar Mm. because they talked about their failures openly. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, it, it really brought attention in because funders are intelligent people who want to fund people who are willing to accept the complexity of the work that they're doing. Um, the caveat, so I'd say, yeah, go for it. Caveat to that is that it's really hard to do well because of all those instincts. Um, and, and, you know, I, gosh, I've probably talked to thousands of people to help them share their story of failure well. And I will tell you that without fail, every single one of them does it badly the first time. <laughs> and they, these are brilliant people. You know, This is not out of a desire to genuinely share their learning well. It's that every instinct in us when we go to share that story publicly is to get defensive. So even though we don't mm. mean to, that defensiveness creeps in and we kind of accidentally in the way that we write or speak or like a little offhand comment we make we mention the other people mm. and factors that caused the failure. And what I want to say is just obviously it's not just you that caused the failure. Any failure we're talking about is caused by many people, many assumptions, many environmental factors, many things going on. Right. But when we talk about our failures publicly, if we blame Others, we think we're we're shielding ourselves, defending ourselves, you know, making us not look as stupid for the mistakes that we made. It does the opposite. It makes us look petty and -hmm. like we're not learning. So it's really about fighting those instincts to want to push blame externally and the willingness to say, I know all those things happen, but I don't need to talk about those because I can't change those things. What I can change is what I did. And what I can learn is from and do differently going forward is, is what I did and what I can do, I can change. Um, so it's really that willingness to look inwardly and be um, almost ruthless about, mm. about, and it's not about beating yourself up. It's saying, look, I I have to learn from this. It's my responsibility to figure out what I need to learn from this so that I can share that with others. Um, And that really has to be the spirit of whenever you're sharing your stories, because otherwise, like I said, it's um, you even if you don't mean to, you end up blaming others. Um, So making sure that at least if you're going to publish that failure report, have a really good editor with a really good defense detector Mm -hmm. um, who can take. And and the best way to do this is just to think if like if this other person that was involved in this failure were writing this story with me, is this Mm -hmm. how they would tell the story? how how do they think about this and if you need to have that conversation with that person even better because there's so much richness of learning in those conversations yeah uh, but but always sharing it from um from that perspective
0: because i suppose you need you need buy-in um from multiple people within an organization don't you say 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 if i were to say here at arica oh let's do a failure report and no one else wanted to um Mm. or no one else saw the value like it would be quite it would be quite a challenge to do wouldn't it because um either 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 would i i'd I'd end up just having to take all the uh, attribute all the fault to myself or Mm. you'd have to you it could easily be construed as yeah 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 otherwise it could be construed as yeah sometimes blaming other people um yeah yeah, and i should
1: say I mean, I've seen this happen a lot too. Um, folks that have called me to, to help them tell those stories don't end up publishing anything because they couldn't get to that place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, the, but it almost doesn't matter by that point because they've had those learning conversations along the way mm-hmm. um, because I made them, <laughs> mostly. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my, um, the only reason a story wouldn't end up in a report is, is if it blamed someone else without them co-authoring or offering their perspective. Um, And uh, so when I'd say, no, we can't publish it. You have to go talk to that person. Even if that story never got published, that conversation that those people had about how they saw what happened is actually what matters. The report doesn't actually matter. Hmm. (laughs) The report is a, is a signal that it's a, it's a, it's a tool. It's a platform so it's useful for creating those conversations but the the conversations where you learn and grow and have to hear somebody else's perspective you know that's that's actually what matters
0: yeah um for for people listening to this um thinking you know th- this this what we're talking about will be new to them but they think this is really this is really cool i want to um i want to start doing this in my own life and my own work what what's the best place to start to, to fail intelligently?
1: Hmm. Mm, wonderful. Um, uh, so the first is to be like, yeah, I'm awesome. I want to <laughs> do something to learn, but really, which is just a, it's, it's hard to do. So just like start with like a big pat on the back, um, that, that you're listening to this, that you want to do something that would, that would be number one for sure, because it, it isn't easy and it is a journey. Um, the second tip is a little bit harder to describe. Um, so I'll, I'll set it up a little bit with a story. I, um, so doing research for this Workplace Courage Group, I ended up getting a quasi-famous friend to send out a tweet um, asking, what do you call somebody who's really great at learning from failure? And out of the, I don't know, thousands of responses, the most common one was... An adult, <laughs> which, of course, I love the internet. It's wonderful and humorous. And um, but what that what that really showed me in this very unscientific poll was that most people think that the problem lies outside themselves. Mm. Like I'm an adult. I learn from my failures. Why can't everyone else? Um, and and it it really shook me. Um, Because it it made me think like how um, how a big part of the problem is that, especially if we're the people listening to this podcast, we're going like, yeah, I want to learn from failure. Why can't everyone else want to learn from failure? Why aren't you know my boss or my organization or my government, why aren't they doing a better job of this? So I'd say like my tip number two is realizing that you can't you can't change those other people. Um, You know, yes, they need to get better at learning from failure too, but you can only change your behavior and your own relationship with failure. And I'd say like the first step in that is is believing that it's possible that you and I, just like everyone else, are maybe not as good at learning from failure as we think we are. (laughs) Mm. So very much that, that second step after we pat ourselves on the back is just to say like, this isn't just other people's problems, but I too can probably get better at learning from my own failures and realizing when I'm falling into those, those defensive traps. Um, can I give one more? One yeah, minute? no,
0: you can, you can.
1: Something, something practical. Cause I feel like that's really important at this stage mm. <laughs> um, is Like, someone right now on your team is probably struggling with something. You know, something's going off the rails or you're working on something and you're like, this is not worth my time. Like, I'm not seeing the return on investment that we should be. But instead of flagging it or asking for help, kind of fixing it, this person is maintaining this belief that failure is not an option and that I need to fix it myself. So if someone on your team is doing that. Maybe that person on your team is you that's in that position. Mm. Um, so tip number two is that if that person struggling is you, is to is to say, you know, is to ask for help, to say this this isn't going well, or I don't think this is worth our time, we need to reconsider this, be willing to speak up, just say I'm in over my head. Um, extra important if you're the leader of the team to do that, I already touched mm. on that. Mm. Um and if it's someone else on your team that's struggling, that you see struggling, you know, instead of just watching them struggle and like quietly judging them, waiting for them to, to fall flat on their face or like like criticizing them and calling it feedback, you know, go up to them with the intention of understanding and supporting and and just share what you're seeing and offer something concrete that you think might help. So, so really to this This last tip is really just to like kill that myth that everything needs to be perfect. Mm. you know admit when you're not doing well and make it okay for others to do the same hmm.
0: thank you um I, I, we're near we're nearing the end. I wonder if I could just ask you um, I heard you on a television interview talking about. It was a metaphor of these, these uh Japanese uh bowls. Um mm. I wonder could you just could you describe this Japanese bowl um to us?
1: <laughs> the uh often I talk about my work in really logical terms and nothing nothing is remembered quite so strongly as the poetic and so i have to remember to bring that in Um, it's uh it's a powerful metaphor so it's the japanese art of repairing pottery uh with gold uh it's called kintsukuroi meaning golden repair um and these basically what the why the metaphor holds so true is because these, these works of art are, are gorgeous. You've got all these cracks and they're lined with gold and the art form recognizes that the piece is more beautiful for having been broken. Uh, that those cracks, those, those failures, they're not something to be hidden or disguised. They're a part of that object's history that went into making it more beautiful. Um, for having for having been cracked and i fundamentally believe that it is always always possible in times of failure to repair with gold it's not guaranteed it's really hard but it is always possible to repair with gold and and come out the other side wiser and stronger for having been broken
0: Great. Brilliant. Ashley, thank you. My pleasure. That was Ashley Good, the CEO of Fail Forward, the world's first failure consultancy. And that's almost it for that. And that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, I will remind you that you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Aruka Network, and Aruka is spelt A-R-U-K-A-H. You can help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page by going to Patreon forward slash Aruka network you can also learn more about us on our website just visit arukanetwork.org and finally if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees then you can reach me directly by email jake at arukanetwork.org but that's it from me until next time bye for now